for a long time, we have talked the talk of our democratic values, but not necessarily walked the walk. It is the week of November 9th, and welcome to episode 50 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson. Today, we'll be doing a deep dive with Max Bergman, Senior Fellow at the Center for American Progress and contributing author to CAP's new report, The First 100 Days, Toward a More Sustainable and Values-Based National Security Approach. Prior to joining CAP, Max served in the U.S. Department of State in a number of different positions, including as a member of the Secretary of State's Policy Planning Staff, Special Assistant to the Undersecretary for Arms Control and International Security, Speechwriter to then Secretary of State John Kerry, and Senior Advisor to the Assistant Secretary of State for Political Military Affairs. Max, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about the recommendations from the Center for American Progress and what they might mean for American foreign policy for the next few years during the Biden administration. First of all, what is the Center for American Progress and what is your role there? Well, the Center for American Progress is an all-issue think tank uh, in Washington, D.C. It's a progressive think tank, so it's left of center. Oftentimes it's described as being associated with the Democratic Party, but in fact, it's nonpartisan, but pushing for progressive ideas. And while it focuses a lot on economic policy, domestic policy, it also focuses on foreign policy. And actually, the, the center was created, formed in 2003, just as the United States was going off to Iraq. Uh, I started working there in 2004, left a few times, came back. But so foreign policy and thinking through what is America's place in the world is central to uh, the Center for American Progress uh, and central to, I think, how progressives uh, need to see themselves, uh, not just pushing for uh, advances in domestic policy, but trying to think about what America's place in the world should be. So let's talk about the recommendations generally. Who contributed to these and how did CAP roll them out? So this was a, an all-hands-on-deck uh, national security department effort uh, led by the head of the national security department, Kelly Magsman, who's a former White House, DOD, State Department official, uh, as well as Katrina Mulligan, who is a, a former DOJ and uh, DNI official, um, who both work at CAP. And, you know, what was interesting about this effort is it wasn't just a bunch of old Obama hands trying to sort of say, well, here are some of the policies that we really wanted to do but didn't get done. There's a lot of that. But also many, it really included our junior staff, the next generation of foreign policy professionals who haven't served in government, but have a different perspective on what America's place in the world is. So this was sort of a give and take. There's a lot of brainstorming. Uh, We also uh, brought in a lot of outside experts to provide uh, their analysis, their thoughts. And, you know, I think what's interesting is this report probably in 2017, if it were written, or definitely in this time four years ago, would have been very different. And I think it's, you know, Trump has sort of changed the equation, changed the discussion, and forced progressives in particular to really rethink what is America's place in the world and what are the things that need to get done uh, on the international level. So one of the things I want to do is take a look at the five pillars of action in in the recommendations and kind of pull them apart because they all sound terrific uh, that like everyone would support all of these pillars of recommendation. I realize they're a little more controversial than that. But before we get into that, let's take a step back. Did, did your group, when you were talking and discussing and working through all these issues, find anything from the Trump administration from the last four years that you think is worth keeping? Was there any salutary impact 
on American national security from the Trump administration. I think we should keep a hold of. So, I, yeah, I don't think necessarily you know, to the T, but I think general themes. So, for instance, I think and you saw this during the Democratic primary that there's a general sense that we need to end the kind of quote unquote forever wars uh, and that it's time for America to not be as militarily engaged in in many of the conflicts that we've been engaged in for nearly 20 years now. And I think that's actually something that uh, may not be shared with many in the Trump administration, but is something probably shared with President Trump. I do think that there's also on China a sense that there is need for real competition with China. I think there's differences in how we would go about doing that, but I think there is some agreement there. And I think also uh, when it comes to trade, when it comes to um, the global economy, I think, uh, well, this is not where Trump is. I think there is also a general sense of that the same rules that, that we've been operating previously, we need to take a look at. And that doesn't mean burning the WTO to, a, to the ground, for instance, but it does mean uh, really confronting China over its um, over its trade practices. So I think there are elements, and I think also the Middle East. It's a good thing that the Trump administration was able to get uh, Arab states to recognize the state of Israel. I think that is something that is all applauded. So I think there are things that would uh, that are appreciated that we would like to build off, but probably take in a different direction. But that said, I think what is sort of unique about the Trump administration is that I would say compared to previous administrations, look, Republicans and Democrats argue about everything, but on foreign policy, there tended to be general agreement. You know, the difference between Obama and Romney, Obama and McCain, were often very tactical, but general agreement over uh, over the thrust of what, what mattered. You know, as, you long, start- as long as you didn't pay too much attention to what the campaigns were saying, I, I right. believe you're correct. Yes. Right. But you, you during a presidential campaign, you would hone in on the areas of disagreement. So in 2008, it was, McCain was too hawkish and Obama was, was going to take a smarter approach. You know, but then, you know, it's the New START Treaty, for instance, got more than 67 votes in the Senate and became a treaty, which showed there was general bipartisan agreement that like a nuclear arms deal with Russia was good, even if you could disagree on Obama's reset. And I but I think where we are now is that there are profound disagreements. So while there are things to build off of, I think there is many really uh, strong disagreements on how Trump approached the world, particularly our allies his treatment of democratic values, his approach to Iran. So I think, you know, there are some things, but I actually think one of the things that makes this a fairly unique transition is how different uh, the approach will be from from President Trump's. All right, let's get into the five pillars of action. The first one, I'm taking this directly from the report, is rebuilding and modernizing our national security institutions to provide the tools and resources necessary to meet today's national security challenges. So the report says uh, later, in the last four years, the U.S. has, quote, invested disproportionately, unquote, in the military. So is is the approach here to have reduced military spending or enhanced spending in diplomacy and development or both? So I think both, but I think I think mainly the latter, mainly that there really needs to be a focus on building up our our diplomatic and economic uh, capacities and when it comes to engaging the world. Um, it, you know, the report makes a particular point in looking at security assistance. Uh, you know, beginning of the of 9-11 uh, and basically the beginning of the Obama administration, U.S. security assistance was largely in, in the funding was largely in control of the State Department. And over the last eight years, 
or the last decade that has been that has shifted partly because the Pentagon could get money and the State Department couldn't. And so now DOD is operating its own foreign assistance uh, bureaucracy, its own foreign aid budget, which basically almost amounts to roughly the same, uh, roughly the $6 billion the State Department was spending. It's roughly the same. And so what happens then is that the Pentagon has has really flexible funding that when a, a COCOM commander, when the head of a central, uh, central command or Pacific command shows up in a country, they also have money that they can bestow on that country, you know, helicopters, vehicles, they can provide that sort of assistance. Normally, that was in, in control of the State Department. So when the State Department combatant commander equivalent shows up and they're talking about human rights that don't really have the flexible resources that they can you know, necessarily provide helicopters or even put a hold on what the Pentagon is doing, it really imbalances how the U.S. engages foreign countries. Uh, and so that's one of the areas that we sort of recommend that really need to take um, take a look at in how we're structured. And, you know, part of it is that we're in a new era, I would argue, that we were sort of built up our, our national security bureaucracy for 9-11 to combat terrorism, uh, to address the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But what's interesting about this past election, counterterrorism just wasn't a hot topic, right? We've, we've kind of intellectually shifted toward geopolitical competition, toward China, uh, toward Russia. But that requires rethinking about how our national security bureaucracy is structured, looking at how our institutions have been set up over the past 20 years to essentially cope with the p- previous challenges. And it doesn't mean dismantling everything. It doesn't mean getting rid of the National Counterterrorism Center. But it may mean restructuring on how, uh, how we are organized and how we are funded and how money is being allocated. You know, I, I agree with you on the issue of assistance dollars ending up at DOD. My, my impression, being more of a, a Hill person, is that that's the consequence of every year there being a National Defense Authorization Act and there being only rarely anything that resembles a State Department Authorization Act. And there hasn't been a foreign aid authorization since, I think, 1996 or 1993, Some almost, uh, excuse me, 1986. It's almost two generations. Uh, so I think it's in a way more of a congressional issue that mission creep you see from DOD grabbing more dollars that should be at state and USAID. But but I I agree with you. That's a that's a big problem, and I hope we can address it with the next administration. But we're, they're going to need some help from Capitol Hill too. Yeah, yeah, no, no doubt. And so part of this, I mean, I think this is one of those things that just sort of happened over time. We are institution. It wasn't sort of a decision was made that let's we're going to create. A bureau, you know, foreign aid is going to DOD. It's just sort of, you know, oh, it was very tactical. It was okay. DOD needs this authority to do this regional assistance program, and then other com- combatant commanders see it. They're able to get funding, and it just sort of then over time explodes. But I think this is part of the part of what is needed is is a, a new administration to come in, and they can help set the ad- agenda, elevate an issue, elevate a concern. And need to work with Congress. This is 100% involves Congress uh, also recognizing the imbalances that exist within our, our our national security bureaucracy, and then hopefully working collaboratively. And I think I think this this could really be an area of bipartisan cooperation. You know, the Republicans that oversee SFRC don't like the fact that they have no oversight now over uh, over a vast chunk of foreign assistance money and that the State Department is losing influence. And I think there's a broader recognition that that's a problem. 
Um, and so, but I think it takes in a new administration to really push that forward and put that on the agenda. So the second pillar is, quote, living our democratic values at home and abroad and prioritizing the defense of those values, unquote. How does this values-based argument apply to our relationship with China? We talked about that a little bit earlier. For all of its faults, uh, the Trump administration actually moved on a number of fronts to challenge China uh, and China's authoritarian approach uh, in Hong Kong, on Xinjiang, in the Indo-Pacific region generally. I think there was more of a kind of a, a policy and philosophical pivot in the Trump administration than there had been under Clinton, Bush, or Obama. How do your recommendations uh, kind of foreshadow maybe a different, a even more different approach from Biden? Right. So what I would say is I think this this is about putting democracy and human rights at sort of the forefront of our foreign policy engagement, that for a long time, we have talk the talk of our democratic values, but not necessarily walk the walk. I mean, some of that requires reform here at home uh, so that we become more of a model for democracy. But also, uh, you know, the things that we were doing were was giving more credence to our autocratic partners than our democratic allies. Some of that was just due to the fact that our attention was focused on the Middle East. Uh, but when it comes to China, I think some of it means talking a lot more forcefully, more uh, talking louder about the human rights violations that are taking place. And you could argue that that Trump administration is doing some of that, but also working with our allies, with our European allies to work jointly to condemn China, to try to put that on the radar screen, not just uh, not just through a State Department tweet, but at the UN, at other multilateral institutions. And that requires working hand in glove with our, I think, our European partners, our democratic allies in Asia. And so some of this is not simply just talking about human rights and and making the Chinese feel bad. It's also about, I think, building our alliances back and making democracy and human rights a central part of that, uh, and a central part of our engagement elsewhere in the world, uh, where when China is, is pushing its engagement, engagement in Africa, the United States, for instance, should be the ones forcefully standing up for democracy and human rights, and also putting money and resources behind that. So country, you know, nascent democracies in Africa or in Latin America that we can provide more assistance to, or we can invite to the White House and provide some sort of elevation and, and prestige to, those are the things that we need to start thinking through. And hence, this is, I think, the major logic be behind this idea of a democracy summit, which is not I the way I conceive of it, and there's many different conceptions, but it's not just to bring a bunch of democracies around the table and say, let's talk about democracy and how great, like, you know, uh, representative government is. It's to bring, it's basically to try to network democratic countries together more. So with the idea that we can cooperate, we'll be able to cooperate effectively to, to address common challenges. Maybe the first meeting is about COVID and about how we respond to the economic crisis. Maybe it's about energy. Maybe it's about climate. So you pick a topic that isn't sort of about democracy, but then in the course of working together and collaborating together, that you begin to build more of a network so that when China does something that's abhorrent, such as in Hong Kong, that you can tap that network and say, we need to speak out about this and maybe you'll get more headway. That's a very interesting response to me because I see a lot of my friends on the right who will say the multilateral institutions we have now are broken. The way they're structured does not advance our values or our interests. And we should be moving away from things like the traditional United Nations systems system and more towards something like a coalition of democracies. So do you think there's a little bit of common ground there where 
maybe the right and the left both see that the way some of these structures are currently arranged are kind of harken back to the Cold War era, maybe were terrific from 1945 to 1990. And now we should be thinking about perhaps a different structure. So I think this is where there's some disagreement. Is you know, John McCain was throwing out the League of Democracies uh, uh, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and so, you know, it's a similar idea. But I think the concept that we have is not that you would uh, turn your back on the UN system, which is what the Trump administration has done. In fact, we argue that we should go back in and commit to uh, and rejoin the World Health Organization. And it, it's sort of, it's, no, we need to redouble our efforts at the UN in multilateral institutions where China is there. And we need to work harder to make sure that they don't diplomatically dominate. And if we just seed the field, you know, those are the major forums for international discussion. But what we can then do is by working and collaborating with democracies outside of those forums, perhaps we have a stronger democratic contingent within them. Now, some of this is, we don't, you know, it's, it's, these are concepts and notions. And we'll see, you know, contacts, you know, ideas when they, when you try to implement them, always sort of shift and change. But I think part of this is that we can't seed the field. And some of it, the UN was never perfect. It was always contested, especially during the Cold War. But what, particularly when you have an era of geopolitical competition, I'd argue that's when the UN is most important. That's when it actually is important to have a setting where we are there with the Chinese, with the Russians, and with the world watching can throw out arguments against them, can raise points where they're maybe violating international norms, international rules. Um, and so we have no credibility in those institutions when we don't engage. Them. So I think I think where we differ with the right is that Yes, we should work with democracies, but we can do that and be super engaged in international forums at the same time. It's a, a lot of diplomatic work. It's going to require a lot of diplomatic energy. It's going to require us to rebuild the State Department or diplomatic capacity. But that's what a superpower should be able to do. All right, let's talk about uh, Pillar 3. And we've kind of touched on, again, some of this earlier. Pillar 3 is ending the current wars responsibly and leading with diplomacy, not military action, to resolve conflicts, unquote. So as you noted, President Trump also talked about ending endless wars. Uh, he was pulling troops out of Syria. There were negotiations going on with the Taliban, may still be going on with the Taliban. He's been reducing the number of troops in Iraq generally. But, you know, when you, when you kind of pull back a little bit, this is, this is my subjective view, the number of U.S. troops that are either in harm's way or close to harm's way are actually quite small. You know, our numbers in Syria are in the small number of hundreds. You got to think cost just for cost effectiveness purposes, these are the most effective humans on the planet. Is there really merit in seeking to reduce the number of folks, a number of men and women we have in harm's way around the world right now, when in fact the footprint is so very small? So it's it's a great question. And I think part of the challenge is that all these conflicts have become sustainable financially, uh, the human toll. So, you know, there's not many think tank panels now about Afghanistan. Well, 10 years ago, endless think tanks. As a, as a leading indicator of trouble in <laughs> Afghanistan, number of think tank panels. Yes, yes. number <laughs> of think tank panels. If there's a lot of think tank panels, you got to really worry about that topic. But I do think the country wants these things to end. And for our own national interest, being still in the middle of them, still with the potential threat to our forces with the, the chance that, and, and I think when you have a footprint, that footprint can easily grow. It can ebb and flow. So I think the goal, much like when Obama entered in uh, 2008 and 2009, you know, should be to wind these down, to get this done. 
We argue for a fairly fast time frame in Afghanistan. Uh, and the fact that there are negotiations going on with the Taliban is something that we obviously would need to take into account. I think this would start with a review. I don't think there was much support for the way Trump announced his withdrawal of U.S. forces from Syria. But I do think there's... Particularly from his Secretary of Defense. Particularly from his Secretary of Defense. Who quit, I believe, a few days later. Yes, who quit because of that. Uh, You know, how that sort of just left our allies completely in the lurch, ceded field to the Russians. That's not this. That's not what we're talking about here. But what we, we are talking about is the objective should be to draw our forces out of conflict scenarios in which the only other alternative is really just to be there. Uh, and and I think in Syria in particular, you know, the way we sort of entered Syria was sort of through just our force presence was never really discussed. And then it was just there. And I think there's a need to, and this is also part of the need to refocus where our national security attention is. I think the other element to this is when you have U.S. forces in combat on the ground, that's where the attention from the White House will be and should be. Even if think tank panels aren't focused there, there will be a lot of, of, na- of focus within our national security, within the White House, within the State Department, the Pentagon, when perhaps we should really we'd be better off focusing more attention elsewhere. And so it's about rolling these conflicts rolling our involvement back responsibly and i think that can be done and and in in conjunction with the allies and partners that we have on the ground so we call for inviting the leader of iraq to to washington uh almost immediately but that's reshifting the thrust of of our foreign policy trump I would agree and acknowledge, I think in some ways agreed with that thrust, but he didn't put in in place the people who wanted to act that out. So when we withdrew, it was because he tweeted it, not because it was part of sort of a deliberate plan strategy uh, and purpose where people, the Pentagon could adequately plan, we could prepare our allies, we could set the groundwork for kind of uh, an orderly departure from where we were. Let me let me push on this a little bit harder because this, sure. this is a big this is a big issue. Um, the the Obama administration kind of fell into a little bit of a trap when U.S. troops came out of Iraq in 2011. Uh, the ISIS, uh, you know, dash um, the Islamic State rises a couple of years later, and suddenly in 2014 we have to go back into Iraq and and into Syria to to fight a a new a relatively new threat, a new modified threat. How, how do you avoid that scenario? I mean, I, I take your point that, you know, the Trump administration has been herky-jerky, but it's left a minimal amount of troops in place seemingly to prevent exactly that kind of thing from happening. What's the what's the real on-the-ground alternative to having a handful, you know, two, three, four thousand U.S. troops ready to go in case something happens versus not being there at all? How do you actually make that final decision to come out without worrying about bad guys showing up again? Right. You know, I would say the Obama withdrawal from Iraq creates a great intellectual discussion about whether that was the right move because of ISIS, of what we learned from a few years later. I, I do think that the development of ISIS was to correlate that with the U.S. troop withdrawal from Iraq and the weakness of Iraqi forces is sort of a mistake. You know, there was this massive thing that happened, the Arab Spring, which then led to Syria effectively collapsing, then prompted the spillover into Iraq. Uh, And what I would say is that we do have forces in the region. This is not a call to remove our bases in in the Gulf, for instance. You will have a very strong military footprint especially in in the Middle East, in the Arab world. Uh, And that will remain. And those forces, I think, as we saw with Syria, 
can then respond. Uh, I'm not sure of having you know, standard fixed military positions within Iraq uh, really will do that, uh, provide us any sort of significant gain besides being perhaps a target for perhaps an Iranian response. But I think the point is taken. I think people remember what happened in Iraq. And I think it's a debatable argument over whether, you know, leaving forces behind what could have come in and stopped ISIS right away. But then are you in the midst, suddenly in the midst of another conflict? I, I would argue, yes, because we then became involved in that conflict. But, but I think part of this is that the Middle East has consumed us for two decades. And if you put forces in a position where they need to respond all the time to internal developments, it will continue to consume us. And maybe there's an internal developments that will happen in these countries that should consume us. That's, that's a fair point. But the broader shift, the broader pivot, you're not pivoting if you're continued to be forward deployed, ready to go at a moment's notice uh, to respond to something that may have a very tangential impact on core U.S. national security interests. Uh, and it's a, it's a debate, but I think that that is frankly where the country is and where U.S. national security posture needs to go and to err on the side, I would argue, of pulling back and of caution. Okay, let's go to pillar number four, recalibrating our global relationships, including with U.S. allies, competitors, and adversaries. I think there's a, a expectation from folks that, okay, we're, we're, you know, President Biden, once he gets into office, is not going to have the same kind of rhetoric President Trump has, which is a little belligerent and kind of surprisingly critical of our closest allies and uh, weirdly embracing authoritarian regimes. But getting beyond that, there are, there are some real questions about U.S. interests and balancing kind of growing powers in the world. We're seeing Turkey and Russia face off against each other in the Caucasus, in the Mediterranean, in Libya, in Syria? Are you hoping that a President Biden tilts differently between Turkey and Russia in those conflicts? In the Middle East, we've got, uh, of course, Iran and Saudi Arabia. The Trump administration has been very much pro Saudi Arabia, the other Sunni Arab countries and Israel, and we're and, and imposing a maximum pressure campaign on Iran. Are you proposing a shift in that? So getting beyond the the rhetoric part, which I which I recognize is a very much a real issue, but getting beyond that to the on the ground support and discussions with different uh, countries that are that are growing and having more influence. How are you hoping President Biden is different than President Trump? So first on, on the just on the recalibration part of it, again, is to go back to that need to focus on our democratic allies, our values, democracy, human rights. So what that means is that countries like Russia, for instance, I think this, you know, argues for um, a fairly confrontational approach in the sense that we need, I think, to reestablish red lines in our relationship with Russia. And we need to make sure that that Russia is deterred from doing the sorts of activities, not just that it did in interfering in our elections in 2016, but how it interferes in many of our countries in Europe uh, in our core democratic allies. And so that's going to potentially lead to a more contentious relationship there. I also think with Turkey, you know, um, is Turkey's a NATO ally, but being a NATO ally should also mean that you're, you know, an ally and act as such. And so I think there's going to need to be some really direct and frank conversations with uh, with the Turks about things that we expect from them. Now, they're probably not going to take that very well. But I would say when it comes to the Gulf, you know, we have the Obama administration spent a ton of time cultivating uh, its relations with our partners in the Gulf. This 
policy and approach, and I think of new Biden administration, is not about having conflict with our Gulf partners, but it's also not about making them the sort of epicenter of U.S. engagement. Um, And that really, that we have problems with their human rights records. And I think when it comes to Iran, we, you know, as uh, someone who worked in the State Department and worked for Secretary Kerry, I think strongly supported the Iran deal, uh, want to see an effort to get back or revive interaction with Iran to get back to some sort of nuclear agreement, whether that can be the JCPOA or some other agreement, and then also hope that we can reach some sort of broader detente in the region. I think that means an abandonment of the maximum pressure campaign, which I don't think has succeeded or worked or led to real, you know, well, it may have brought some pressure on the Iranian economy, has also given the Iranian economy Iranians a great excuse for poor economic performance. And so I think there'll be engagement with Iran, effort to uh, to sort of forge a detente with some of our Gulf partners. But then, you know, when it comes to countries, you know, that are backsliding democratically, you know, when it comes to liberal democracy, not just Turkey, but also Hungary and Poland, I think there's going to be some really direct and frank conversations. We don't really know how that will play out, but I think it's it's time you know, the U.S. doesn't want to have adversarial relations with non-democratic countries. We want to have good relations with lots of countries. But if a country is taking actions that undermine us, such as Russia, I think it'll call for a more forceful approach. If a country is taking actions that undermine the, the NATO alliance or, uh, or undermine other democratic partners, uh, that's going to call for a more confrontational approach. And I don't know exactly, you know, I think this is where diplomacy comes into play. You don't always just sort of throw a shoe at someone. You, you know, so I think this will be, um, need to be choreographed, coordinated with our democratic allies. The European Union has much more leverage over Hungary than we do. And it's good news that they, for instance, just passed a provision of their budget that will require conditions on rule of law. So those are things that the United States should support the EU taking. So some of this means working through others to exert pressure. So, um, But that's where the recalibration comes in, where it's not just about the Middle East, not just about sort of uh, maintaining the relationships that we had uh, previously. It's about elevating some relationships, such as with nascent Democratic partners, and putting others maybe in their place where we're just not going to prioritize them because they're not being great partners, such as with Turkey. Did the report address the issue of Israeli-Palestinian peace talks and how they could or should be revived in the next four years? Yeah. So the report looks at that and says, firstly, that we need to reset our kind of approach and means restoring aid uh, to the Palestinians. And then, you know, I think reestablishing our opposition to the expansion of of settlements. Um, But I think this is I think one of the things that I would just say personally is it seems to me that uh, having worked for two past secretaries of state, one who put his heart and soul into trying to get a deal that was sort of, you know, came close and then pulled away. And another who said, you know what, this is going to suck up a lot of attention, a lot of oxygen, and there's too many other things. So I think there's a prioritization that has to come. If you think that progress can be achieved, by all means, go for it. But I think there's also a sense that, you know, we don't need to to necessarily focus all our energy and attention diplomatically. It's important to understand, yes, we can walk and chew gum at the same time, but it's really hard to be all in on on Israel-Palestinian peace deal um, and then do other things as well. So I think there's an element here where there's so much to do 
that this is about resetting where we stand um, to, I think, back to some of where we were in, in 2015, 2016, and then see if there's opportunities for progress and talk, you know, not at a secretary of state level, but at lower levels, see if progress can be made. And then if it can and you're getting close, okay, then swoop in. So I think that's that's basically where at least I see it. All right, let's get to the, the final uh, pillar here. Tackling global challenges such as climate change, migration, arms control, corruption, and the need to build a new multilateralism that advances the collective good. We've already touched on some of these issues. Of course, the Trump administration had its own take on uh, on all of those issues. How do you anticipate President Biden, you know, kind of based on your recommendations, will come to a different end on these multilateral questions? Well, I, you know, we, we talked about it a little bit already. Just it's about the, the, the need to be engaged in them even if they're talking about things that you don't necessarily want or necessarily like. You know, the Obama administration, we were engaged in discussions at the CCW, which is a convention on conventional weapons. And, you know, there were things that we were like, God, the Europeans are pushing that we're not really a fan of. Well, it's good that we're at least engaged in those conversations. And so we need to be engaged. And if we're talking about things at the international level that we don't want them to be engaged in or they're missing major topics, well, we should push in that certain direction. I do think that, you know, the illicit finance and corruption, I think, is a really important topic and one that really wasn't really on the radar screen. It's definitely not on the radar screen for the Trump administration, but really wasn't on the radar screen for an Obama administration. And what this gets at is one of the things that we've become attuned to is one of the ways that that uh, autocratic states exert influence is through money and resources and especially the illicit finance and, and being able to launder money through the Western banking system that can be, then be used to buy up Western assets. Maybe those are strategic assets. Maybe those are strategic companies. Maybe they're just, pro it's just property, which then enables Russian oligarchs to have uh, political influence, whether that's in the UK or here. So I think part of that is how do we then go about uh, uh, creating a more robust anti-corruption, anti-money laundering system it requires a lot of work with our allies, uh, requires uh, establishing international standards, cracking down on tax havens and, and other places that where money is siphoned off. And so, you know, that that is an area of multilateralism that maybe that's not done through the UN system. It's maybe, you know, there's other multilateral venues that will be uh, uh, will work for that. But that that is, I think, part of what this is uh, talking about. Um, and it also means that places like the WTO don't burn them down, but we need to engage uh, with our allies to make sure that the WTO isn't just working to enforce things against us and against our European partners, but also against China, who is running roughshod over a lot of the rules uh, that uh, trade practices that the WTO is meant to to stop out. And if it's not, if the WTO can't operate, well, then that requires a new conversation about what our what a trading regime is. So, it, I think you know. This requires also just intensive effort on climate change. This is, you know, I think a critical issue, a critical national security issue and one where we have an accord. And so part of, I think, what is in the Biden administration's plan and, and is in here is to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords on day one. And then it means not just sort of settling there, but also taking further action. Now, we'll see how the Senate plays out. We'll see how what is possible legislatively. 
But this is something that is going to be a major international topic. Uh, there's uh, COP21, which will be in, in Scotland, in, uh, hosted by Boris Johnson. And that's you know a major priority of the conservative UK government is making advances on climate change. And so, you know, we'll see where the Republican Party comes down after Trump on some of the climate issues. But, you know, there's a lot that can be done through executive action, uh, a lot that can be done at the state level through places like California. So I think there's going to be a lot of energy there, uh, both at the UN level, the multilateral level. So, you know, I, I that that I think is part of what we're talking about is that this intensive engagement with not just allies and partners, but also with just other countries. China's going to be a critical player as well when it comes to climate change, as well as other developing countries who we need to develop uh, their economies in a green, clean way, not simply uh, following our path, which was which would be incredibly harmful uh, to the environment, harmful to everyone. All right, Max, you said the, the trigger word, Republicans. So here's the here's the exit question for you, sir. If, in fact, Republicans end up controlling the Senate by winning one or both of the, the two seats in Georgia, how do you, and maybe this isn't something that was addressed in the report necessarily, but what's your sense of how President Biden is going to have to adjust his approach if he is dealing with a majority Republican Senate? Well, I think, you know, I, I divorced domestic policy issues with some of the foreign policy issues. Now, some foreign policy issues are our domestic policy issues, which tech regulation, for instance, is now uh, a foreign policy issue. And Europeans may just lead on that because, you know, one of the things that we've now discovered is the European Union is, in fact, a regulatory superpower and can set a lot of the global standards. And so one thing I think for the Republican Congress to understand is that if we don't set the standards, you no, know, perhaps Europeans do. Perhaps they do that through a carbon border adjustment tax, which hits American producers. Now, we could take them to the WTO, but perhaps a Biden administration will decide not to because they're actually pursuing uh, forcing changes within our economy that, you know, we're actually okay with, uh, whether that's on tech or whether that's on climate. So that that's, I think, on some of those trickier, thornier domestic issues. But I think when it comes to the broader challenge of China, of Russia, the Republican Party, I think, will largely revert to where it was pre-Trump on, on many of those issues. And I take great hope, actually, from the Senate Intelligence Committee report that came out in August, which was, I have to say, one of the bravest pieces of bipartisanship that I've ever seen. This was a thousand page report that effectively said the president's campaign colluded with the Russians. And it came out in August and it was signed by Chairman Burr or uh, it was pushed by by then Chairman Burr. but signed off by Marco Rubio. Now, he said that this didn't prove collusion. But what was in the report in a lot of the was really remarkable. And in all of five of the Senate Intel Committee's reports showed that there was bipartisanship uh, there alive in Washington on that need to respond to Russia, on the need to respond to China. So I, I actually think what we're going to see is a dramatic shift where suddenly Republicans are going to be the hawks again and say, you're doing what on Russia? You're not, you haven't hit them hard enough. Uh, we're not sure about this nuclear arms control deal that you're, you know, that you're negotiating. Well, sort of, it'll resemble more 2010 than it will uh, 2017, 2018, 2019. And I think that's true on China too, where the Biden administration is going to want to compete very aggressively, going to take a really strong position, but is also going to want to engage. And and so I think there's real room there, and I, I could see real initiatives when it comes to uh, getting back in the information space in the. Yeah, you know, the U.S. Uh, agent, uh, USAI, um, and in revamping how we do public diplomacy, uh, how we respond to foreign interference. I think there's going to be a lot of resources there that will have bipartisan support. 
So there's going to be real areas of tension. I'm sure Iran will be one. Uh, the Middle East will be a, ma- a continued area of, of bipartisan disquiet. But I'm hopeful that on Russia and China and some of the bigger areas of how we rebuild with our allies, uh, uh, reviving transatlantic cooperation, especially around NATO, um, we'll see bipartisan support. Uh, and hopefully also bipartisan support on how we sort of restructure our national security bureaucracies. We started off this conversation I think could gain some traction. Now, not fully, but like, I, I think there's real room where these are technical issues. These are more technocratic in nature, how we sort of, you know, manage ourselves uh, in Washington. And I'm hopeful that we can, we can uh, see some real bipartisan cooperation and then have the partisan food fights on, on other domestic policy issues. Max, this was great. Thanks very much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was, it was a pleasure to talk with you. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Grant Haver for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.